All righty. Good morning, GCC. How is everyone today? Good. Now, the last time I was up here, some of you may remember I ended up losing a page. So I took some sage wisdom from Jono, put a staple in it. So it's a little bit... And, and page numbers. It's a little bit unwieldy when you have to flip it over, but, um, but it's, it is absolutely worth it. Um, so anyone who's um, been around when I've spoken in the past, everyone knows I love a bit of a preamble. Um, that's not going to happen today. We're actually going to dive straight into it. So we'll just let everything settle down. Very cool. All right, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What Jesus is trying to say here is majorly, well, predominantly two things. Number one is we've got to put his words into practice, but number two is that foundation is critically important. And um, today we're going to talk about the latter, foundation. Because it doesn't matter what you build on top of whatever you have in life, if you don't have the right foundation, it is going to come crashing down. And it doesn't come crashing down immediately. It comes crashing down at the time when you probably need it the most, like when it's raining or hailing and you need a house. Uh, yesterday we had the gingerbread workshop and um, many of you came, and it was a really great event. And Kerry actually mentioned um, this verse, this passage, but she was talking about the foundation behind a gingerbread house. Today, let's talk about the foundation, um, well, biblical foundation. We're going to go back to basics. So we're actually going to talk about the most, or probably one of the most dominant teachings of Jesus across the four Gospels, and that is the kingdom of God. If you look into the um, ESV, um, they mention the word kingdom about 126 times across the entire thing. So it gets a massive amount of airtime, but I don't think it's something that's necessarily well understood. And today we'll be using the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. Uh, some of the reasons why I think it's a little bit misunderstood is because Jesus talks so much about what the kingdom of God is, but he doesn't actually say the exact definition. He doesn't give the black and white definition of what that is. So as an exercise, I want you to have a think right now. To yourself, what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean to you from all the things that you've read in the Bible? And if you want, you can tell the person next to you, you've got a couple of words. What do you reckon the kingdom of God is? A lot of silence. <laughs> well, why don't we open up in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that we have the privilege um, to speak about your word openly and publicly, and we have the privilege to know your word. I thank you, Lord, that um, you give us grace and you help us through difficult situations. And Lord, many people right now are going through difficult situations. We pray that as I speak your word, Lord, that I would decrease, you would increase, and your word would do profound things in people's lives. And so, Lord, we pray that your word won't return void, but instead it will go out and do these amazing things. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, did anyone find that hard to define? Yeah? 
Did anyone get something different to what their neighbor might have said? The thing is, is you're not actually alone. Many people naturally struggle to define this or have a consistent definition of what the kingdom of God is. And once again, that's because Jesus is constantly saying the kingdom of God is like this or the kingdom of God is like this instead of the kingdom of God is this. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the kingdom of God is conceptually and we'll, go, we'll use a whole host of verses to... Um, just kind of deliver that. And most of them are pretty common, so a lot of you may know these. We first learn the kingdom of God is something of immense value. Matthew 13, 44 says, A kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then he went in his joy and sold everything he had to buy that field. The next verses continue. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So we learn the kingdom of God is something of immense value, but it's also something that can be sought after and it's something that you can attain as, as those people try to do. Twice this comes up and in the Beatitudes, the first, um, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this doesn't mean that we should strive to be spiritually deficit. This is in fact talking about humility, recognizing how depraved we are compared to the righteousness of God. And the second from Beatitudes comes in verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one last area, Matthew 6.33, it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And Cass actually just talked about that when she was praying for the offering. Here Jesus is teaching people not to worry about these daily sort of things. And the Bible says, like, don't be like a pagan, which is like chasing after all these things that we need. God will provide these things. Instead, seek first the kingdom, and then you will be given that, and all the other things will be added to you as well. So it's something that can be attained. But the kingdom of God is something that also may not be attained, and, and it's something that might be unbeknownst to the person who thinks they have it. It says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And again, in Matthew 21, there's a time where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he gives them this, this story about God being a landowner and how he's prepared up this vineyard and, he's, and God then rents out these vineyards to tenants and when the harvest comes, God sends his servants to collect the harvest. But instead of the tenants letting them do that, they actually beat down these servants, they actually kill some and then God says, you know what, I'll send my son, or the, or the landowner in this case because he's still in the parable, says, I'll send my son, they will respect him. But instead they say, let's kill the son and take the inheritance of the vineyard. And Jesus actually says to them, and here he comes back and he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. And so here the Pharisees thought they were righteous, they thought they were doing the right thing, or at least they portrayed that image. And Jesus was letting them know that though they thought they had the kingdom of God, in fact, they don't. So it's something that may not be attained unbeknownst to a person. 
The kingdom of God is also something to be proclaimed. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Luke 4, 14, and he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And this is Jesus speaking, so he's speaking about himself, how he needs to proclaim the gospel. And it doesn't just stick to the gospels. In Acts 28, 31, this is later on where Paul, um, he's kind of like just come out of a a time of strife and he's staying at his own rented house and he's welcoming everyone who comes to see him and he says he proclaims the the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it's something that can be proclaimed. And these are all the things that we read a lot about and, um, and we know about the kingdom of God. But there's some parts that are actually a little bit confusing when you start to read other Bibles verses of the kingdom of God. So the first thing is the kingdom of God is not a place. But sometimes it is. So Matthew 28, 12, 28, it says, But it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in this case, it's not really a place, but it's something that can come upon you. And then in Luke 17, 21, from the NKJV, it says, For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Other translations, the NIV, may say that it's among you or it's in your midst. So here also, it's, um, it's not exactly a place. It's something that's within us or in our midst. And then Matthew 8.11 says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So here the kingdom of heaven is described as a place. Hold that thought. It's something that will come and is close to coming, yet it's something that's already here. In Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer, it's something that we are taught to pray that would come. So it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here, the kingdom is yet to arrive and it's something that we need to pray for its arrival. But then Mark 1.15 says that it's actually really near. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's talking about the kingdom being at hand. But then Luke 17, 21, as we kind of already read earlier, says the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or the NLT actually says the kingdom of God is already among you. So this might raise some interesting questions about the kingdom of God. What is this thing that's of immense value? What is this thing that must be proclaimed? What's this thing that can be attained or might unbeknowingly not be attained? But what is this thing that is coming yet is already here? And what is this thing that's a place yet isn't really a place? Well, simply put, the kingdom of God is God's reign. R-E-I-G-N. It's God's rule. And if you're wondering how it can be coming in the future, and it can be at hand, and, and, and it can be here already right now, well, it's God's rule in heaven, and His eventual rule on earth, where we get the kingdom of God both being here, yet not here at the same time. And that sounds a bit strange. You might be thinking, doesn't God have full control in heaven, and doesn't God have full control on earth? Well, the answer is actually no. And you might be thinking, why Joe put me up here right now? But let's put a pin in that for now. We'll actually come back to that 
in a moment. <laughs> because I actually want to close off the other loop. We also talked about um, how God's rule and reign can be a place and not a place. And this one's a little bit simpler. When we understand that the kingdom of God is God's rule, um, when the kingdom of God is, when the Bible is talking about the kingdom of God being God's rule in a place, it, it's talking about heaven and earth. But God's rule and reign also takes place in our lives, irrelevant of the place. And His rule and reign in our life is also something that can happen now or it may be happening for someone else in the future. So not to get too confusing, but you can see this as a little bit of a two-by-two matrix. If if anyone's a consultant, you might be very familiar with this. The kingdom of God can kind of be a place and it can kind of be within us. And at the same time, it can be something that is both happening now and both something happening in the future. And once you understand that the kingdom of God is simply God's reign, it starts to make sense in all the contexts. And you can go back through all those verses. So if you jump online and go back to the sermon, you go through all the verses that I talked about earlier, and you realize you can substitute in God's reign or God's rule, and each of these make sense individually. But more importantly, if you substitute that in, it makes sense across the entire concept, across all the verses collectively. So we've talked about what the kingdom of God is conceptually, but I don't just want this to be head knowledge. In fact, it's so much more than head knowledge. And so I want to look at what this looks like in creation and what it kind of looks like for us today. And to understand all this, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven or the heavens is the place where God elects to have full reign and dominion. That's His area. And now I told you earlier about the whole potentially not having control thing, and that's this part. Earth is the place where God chooses to allow us to exert our will and have control over. So He allows us to exert our will, and while, while our will is not perfectly aligned to His will, He also chooses to not have full dominion over Earth. Basically, this is our area. And we know what our space looks like. Like, we look around, we see houses, we see trees, we see buildings. Um, not so much for heaven. It's a little bit of a misunderstood space. The Bible gives us some sort of imagery, but largely it's meant to be, be beyond our comprehension. But Genesis 1 continues to show that God has given us dominion over earth. Then God said, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He says it again. And then he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So the Bible talks about heaven and earth being created in chapter 1. And then it goes on to talk about the things that you might have already read in the past, the creation of light, the water, the land, vegetation, day and night cycles, and creatures. Then at the start of the very next chapter, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in a vast array. And if you jump a few verses forward to chapter to verse 4, it continues and says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you can see the emphasis is both on the heavens and the earth. And so while the creation story sounds really just about earth, 
it's actually about heaven and earth. And this is critically important because at this time, despite heaven and earth being two distinct things, they are actually, which is basically God's space for dominion and our space, they're actually one. They're actually a shared space. And probably the easiest way to understand this is as two overlapping realms or dimensions of one place. It's a true picture of heaven on earth. And we actually see this. Like we see that um, there's evidence of God and Adam and Eve physically interacting with each other in the same way that I'm interacting with you right now. In Genesis 1, it says that God hovers above the waters. And in Genesis 3, the Bible describes God walking in the garden. And He actually calls out to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are trying to hide from God at this point because they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're trying to physically hide from them. The Bible says they're hiding behind trees. Um, But they did that in disobedience to God, and that's why they were trying to hide. Now, when this happens, many of you will know in Genesis chapter 3, we call this the fall of man. It's when sin enters the world. And suddenly, that unity between heaven and earth, that connection, it's, it's fractured. Because the will of man no longer lines up with the will of God, and so they can't be perfect coexistence. And the rest of the Bible, and up until today, and all the way until the end times, is about restoring this fracture. And now, while these two areas are fractured and slightly separated from one another, it's not completely disjoined. There are still pockets of overlap, like little connection points between heaven and earth, and we see glimpses of these overlaps throughout the Old Testament all the way up until now. And when this happens, it manifests as people connecting with God, being in the presence of God, and God dwelling among us. And so one key example I'll give you is the time when Moses encountered God in Exodus 3. You'll remember Moses is going on his way, and then he sees a burning bush, and God calls him to come closer. And then as he comes closer, God says to him, whoa, 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 stop right there, take off your sandals, you are standing on holy ground. And then it says that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That was a physical encounter with God, and Another example is when Jesus comes to earth and he's among people. He performs miracles, he forgives sins, he underwent the transfiguration, and there are all these overlaps of where heaven and earth are connecting, basically God's domain and currently what is our domain. And this still happens in the present age with the Holy Spirit. If you've ever got a word of prophecy before, if you've ever experienced healing, if you've ever encountered God, you have stood at a connection point between heaven and earth. Kind of like Adam and Eve did just not continually. And the final example I want to talk about on this whole connection on heaven and earth is something that we don't actually talk too much about, but it's the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this place that God kind of instructed Moses to tell the people to build. It's kind of like a courtyard. It's, it's, it's fenced off, and in this place, in this courtyard, there is this holy space. And in there, there is a super holy space. So it's the whole, called the Holy of Holies. And that is an area that's kind of separated out from the world. It's like an area demarcated out for God. And it's said that that is where God resides. And we know kind of God is everywhere, but there is an implication that He physically resides in this Holy of Holies. And this kind of place um, is once again an overlap of heaven and earth. You can't just walk into there. You can't just see God. In fact, the high priest could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
Now, as it goes from the courtyard to the holy place to the holy of holies, there's all this stuff in there that kind of looks really heaven-like, God-symbolic. Like a lot of areas in the Bible where you get kind of those descriptors of heaven or how heaven is described to us. Like, for example, you have the stone tablets in there, and they're the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and they're sitting in the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of like this unit and box, and it's like a super holy thing. You may remember there was a time where the Ark of the Covenant was destabilized for a second, and someone tried to stabilize it, and they got struck down by God. It is super holy, and it's... um, and there's other things in there in the, in the tabernacle that um, is stuff for rituals. And there's actually two golden cherubim that have full outspread wings. And the Bible goes to a painstaking level of detail to intricately describe how the tabernacle was built, what's in it, what are the dimensions. And I think when I was younger, I used to always be like, man, this is a lot of time spent talking about something that I really didn't care about. In truth, it actually spans about eight chapters of Exodus. And here's the thing. When the Bible puts so much emphasis on something, you know it's important. And now you know why. Because it's heaven on earth. It's God's physical dwelling place. Now, as you know, in Exodus, people, um, God's people didn't have a home yet. They're kind of like walking around. They're trying to find the promised land. And so this tabernacle is kind of like the travel edition, like the travel version, the light version of God's dwelling. Later on, Solomon's temple becomes larger and more permanent dwelling for God, equipped with similar things and also a holy of holies and all that. So you might be reasonably asking, if sin fractured the connection between heaven and earth and our will and God's will could not coexist, why is there still some overlap? Like, why do we get these pockets of heaven on earth? And the truth is, it's because that's, because God didn't want it that way. He doesn't want heaven and earth to be fractured. He created a path for us where we can be atoned or forgiven for our sins, initially through animal sacrifice and later through Christ, where we can be free of sin and once again be in His presence. Now, when Christ comes down to earth, He is actually described as God's dwelling among us. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it continues in verse 14 to say, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling upon us. So, the Word of God was with God, and the Word was, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So, God made His dwelling among us through Jesus. And it continues in chapter 2, and you remember that scene where Jesus is in the markets and people are kind of trading at the temple, and Jesus is visibly upset about this, so he um, upturns everything, and the Jews respond back by saying, what sign do you have to prove the authority that you are doing this? And Jesus responds in verse 19, so in John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, the Jews are kind of bewildered by this. They're kind of like, we took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to bring it back in three days? Now, we have the privilege of knowing that Jesus was talking about his own body on the cross. So the question is, why did Jesus refer to his body as a temple? Well, it's because the temple with the Holy of Holies is God's dwelling place on earth. And Jesus, as we just read, is the Word which has become flesh, which is also God's dwelling place on earth. So both him and the temple are God's dwelling place on earth. The difference is he's not sitting 
just in the Holy of Holies, but instead he's in kind of like that travel mode again, a bit of a tabernacle mode. He's hanging out with sinners, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's forgiving sins, and as we talked about earlier, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. So all these things show that connection between heaven and earth. And now this seemingly actually comes to an end when Jesus is crucified, and those who are opposing him think that they have victory, but in reality, the victory is God's, and the victory is ours, because in Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is all on track for God's restoration plan between heaven and earth, and one day, Jesus will return, and he'll complete that restoration. But in the meantime, this is why we're taught to pray in Matthew 6. Our, heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In other words, his rule and his reign come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom of God or his rule is at hand, but it hasn't completely come. Well, at least not here on earth. One day, the connection between heaven and earth, or more accurately, a new heaven and a new earth, as stipulated in Revelation 21, will be fully realized as it was in the Garden of Eden. And just as Adam and, earth, uh, just as Adam and Eve were cast from the garden after their sin, so too will those who don't have the kingdom of God within them when the kingdom of God comes. They too will be cast out from the new heaven and earth where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And with everyone else remaining here, or remaining in eternity. So God's people don't go anywhere. Um, I think when we're young, we, we, um, we see media and we see cartoons, we always think that heaven starts later, life sta life's now, when you die, you will then go to heaven. But if you're actually reading the Bible, it never alludes to that. We don't go to heaven. Instead, we remain here, but this earth and this heaven, the current heaven and earth will go, and a new heaven and earth will be created, but everyone else will be cast out. And many of the parables in Matthew allude, allude to this casting out. So, for example, Matthew 13, 42, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the parable of the weeds. 13, Matthew 13, 50, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the parable of the net. 22, 13, then the king told the attendants to tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the parable of the banquet, the wedding banquet. Verse 24, 51, he will cut him up into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's the parable, I don't know what the parable's called, it's the one where the master's away and um, the servant is lazy, maybe the parable of the lazy servant. Verses 25-30, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable of, that's the one where he's got the bags of gold. They don't always label the parables. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's a lot of parables, there's a lot of casting out, there's a lot of weeping and there's a lot of gnashing of teeth when you read all that. So what will this new heaven and earth be like? So for everyone else who remains in this new heaven and earth, this restored garden of Eden, so to speak, what will it be like? The truth is we don't know a whole lot about that. And there are some points that are just really greatly debated still to this day among theologians. But here are some of the things we do know. 
God will dwell among people. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. There'll be no sickness or suffering. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isaiah 33.24, No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Isaiah 35.5-6, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams and streams in the desert. And one other thing we know is that it will last for eternity. John 3.16, the most popular verses, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And let that sink in for just a moment, because I think as humans we don't have a good grasp of what eternity means. From the day we were born, we've always experienced things as having a start and an end. In fact, everything we do in life, we think, when is this starting? When is this ending? Good things all come to an end. All those sort of phrases that we've kind of been consciously taught, um, it's so embedded in our consciousness. But when you think about eternity, well, I can't say much besides it's a really long time. Um, but this is dwelling among God with true joy, no sickness, suffering, no tears, no pain, forever. And so we've talked a little bit about what the kingdom of God is conceptually, and more importantly, I've kind of talked about what it is physically, um, how it will be a new heaven and earth. And the reason I talked about things, these things, I brought up the tabernacle, I brought up um, the temples and all these things in the Old Testament and the creation, is the importance that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God or God's rule is so relevant to us today. It's not just a concept that we have, it's not just something that we worry about later on or heaven is something that we worry about later on, heaven and earth is here right now. And so the question is, how do we take part in it? And I think it starts by understanding the concept of citizenship. When you're a citizen of a nation, you immediately obtain all the benefits that come with being a citizen. And these benefits are non-conditional. You don't need to be like a model citizen. Um, in, even in fact, if you break the law, not recommended, but if you break the law, you still have access to these benefits. If I went outside and I foolishly jaywalked across a highway and I got hit by a car, um, they're not going to deny me Medicare. They're not going to say, well, because you did something wrong, you don't get those benefits. These benefits are non-conditional. And we can even see this in the Bible. In Acts 22, Paul is about to be flogged by a centurion. Remember that time where he's talking about the gospel and the crowd had turned against him. They thought um, he had been saying wrong things or he'd been speaking heresy. And what does Paul say when the centurion's about to flog him? He goes, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And strangely enough, you would have thought the centurion would have said, what do I care, I'm a centurion. But you actually read in Acts, they actually have like a, a little mini freak out. Like, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and he reported it. He says, what are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Like, he's like, are you really a Roman citizen? Because I'm about to... And he says, yes, I am. And then verse 29 continues by saying, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. 
So being a citizen is a really big deal. Now, on the flip side, if you're not a citizen, it actually doesn't matter who you are. You can't get the benefits that are conferred, conferred to citizens. You can be anyone, but if you're not a citizen, you're no one. As a citizen, I'm entitled to an Australian passport. But did you know the Dalai Lama, Elon Musk, and Taylor Swift can't get one? It doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter what they have done, it doesn't matter how amazing everyone thinks they are, it just matters if you belong. It's all about citizenship. So the question is, what benefit is conferred by being a citizen of the kingdom of God? By being a citizen of, this God's, of God's rule, of God's reign? Well, there's actually heaps, but I'm only going to talk about one of them, and that is God's covenants for salvation for us. And kind of as Braddon mentioned in his previous sermon, this could be a whole sermon in itself, and so I'm not going to turn into a whole sermon itself. But quickly, there are five main covenants that build upon salvation, and I encourage you guys to look at this in the Bible yourself. So first is God's covenant with Noah, where he says that he will preserve the world. That was a covenant to us, and you'll remember, he indicates, he talks about the rainbow being an indication of that. And then second, probably the largest and most relevant covenant that most people know is the covenant with Abraham, where God says that he has a plan for redemption. Once again, he doesn't want to leave heaven and earth fractured. And then God has a covenant with Moses, where he establishes the nation of Israel, the people initially through whom redemption would come. And then we've got God's promise of a king through the line of David. And now we know that king is Jesus. And the fifth and last of the major covenants is God's fulfillment of his plan for salvation through Jesus. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, these covenants are for you. These covenants are for us. And so how serious is God about these covenants? Well, in Psalm 138.2, this is a psalm of David, so David is a psalmist. He says, for you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. It's quite It's quite a big statement. David is basically saying that God has lifted his decrees. The seriousness of his decrees are so important that he's implying that God has lifted it higher than himself. He's saying his decrees are bigger than God himself. It's a big statement. And when it comes to these covenants of salvation, it doesn't really matter in some sense how you may have lived your life. If you're a citizen, you have it. And on the flip side, it doesn't matter how you may have lived your life, if you're not a citizen, you don't have it. So the question is, how do we become a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, the answer is the kingdom of God itself. It's God's rule. It's God's reign. Trust in Jesus as your personal savior and let God reign reign supreme in your life. Live in hope and live knowing that at the end, there is only joy, there's no suffering, there's no tears. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you share such profound knowledge with us, that your Holy Spirit guides us in understanding these things. And Lord, we want to pray that today that salvation won't be just something that people think for later. It won't be something that they're just living their life now and heaven comes later because we know that you created the heavens and the earth and and the heavens and the earth, while it may be a little fractured now, you have a plan for restoration. 
And Father, we thank you that you dwell upon us, that we can see amazing things, that we live in a supernatural life, that because of this connection between heaven and earth, it's not just a physical life, but it's one where you heal, where you encounter, where you do amazing things, where you are involved in our lives and we can encounter you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that we can live supernatural lives among the natural, and this will be normal for us because we have a mighty, mighty God. And Lord, I pray that anyone who doesn't know you will find you today, and they will encounter you. And Lord, that you would reign supreme, not just in heaven and not just fully on earth, but also reign supreme in our lives as well. And we thank you, Jesus, and we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.